The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to Partially Examined Life. Actually, Bergson thinks that apparently robots are the funniest goddamn thing in the world. So I, <laughs> You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 57 is, what is humor? And we read Henri Bergson's Laughter, an essay on the meaning of a comic from 1900. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer talking to you from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And that's a catch. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is Jennifer Desura in New York. New York City? New York, New York? New York, New York. It goes without saying. I am in my 25th floor airy overlooking uh, the stock exchange. The capital of the goddamn world. Yeah, and welcome to the podcast. Tell us about yourself and why you're here. Thank you. Uh, my story starts when I decided to major in philosophy at Dartmouth. And I think that my idea of philosophy up to that point had been uh, sort of combative. I had been a high school debate champion. So philosophy was something you would do in 30-second increments as a weapon. And then I got to Dartmouth. I did four years of philosophy, mostly because it was the easiest thing for me to do. It was just sort of a no-brainer. I said, my God, I can just read these books and write papers about them. No problem. And so... Four years later, you know, I graduate and I'm running a dot com and I discovered that uh, whenever I would talk to, for instance, my accountant, uh, people would say things like, wow, philosophy. And they would assume that I knew the meaning of life or had spent a lot of time talking about the meaning of life. They would then often bring up sort of new age authors that they had read who had some things to say about Uh the meaning of life. And I thought it was really interesting because I felt like what I sort of brought to the table from philosophy, if anything, was just a sort of uh, ability to arrange my thoughts in a linear manner and uh, realize that other people's thoughts are almost never arranged in a linear manner and to proceed accordingly. After my company failed, I started doing comedy, as you do. And I have a show now called What Philosophy Majors Do After College. And it's a show where I do the history of philosophy melded with my personal story of having a lot of very strange jobs after majoring in philosophy. And uh, that show, I take it around to colleges around the country and book festivals, librarian parties, things like that. Would somebody like to give the uh, short summary of what Mr. Bergson had to say? Actually, the first thing I'd like to get clear on is what exactly are we talking about tonight? Are we talking about laughter? Are we talking about what's funny? Are we talking about the philosophical anatomy of jokes? Well, should we talk about his book and then see where that goes from there? I mean, he calls it laughter and the meaning of the comic. I think it's not clear that it's about any of those things. (laughs) I have a very short summary and then someone can add to that if they like. The basic idea is that Laughter is a reaction to 
the perception that there's something mechanical or rigid encrusted upon the living, to quote it directly. I like that word encrusted there. So life is something elastic or plastic and continuous. And occasionally you get these eruptions of rigidity. And that's where Bergson thinks the comic comes in. And that's important because society requires this sort of adaptability and elasticity in us. We have to conform to some extent to the rules. And the comic character is the one who's kind of clueless to those rules and to themselves. And laughter is a kind of corrective that's aimed at this comic character. Basically, you're humiliating someone into conformity, which is an interesting part of the theory. But uh, So this idea of rigidity or something mechanical foisting itself upon life and society, which when they're functioning best are adaptable and elastic, that's where things become funny. And so then he goes through all the different areas. So form and gesture, situations and words, and then finally character in the last chapter, sort of spelling out how that rigidity plays out. So that's my short summary. We should probably say a little bit about Bergson himself. Mm-hmm. He's not exactly a household name anymore, but he was back in the day. Early 20th century, yes. He was a big friend of James, later in James' life. James, William. James, William, yeah. Not James, Henry or James, <laughs> Jesse. And he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was also had a fan in Whitehead and an uncertain critic in Russell. And there are lots of prominent 20th century philosophers who might not have agreed with him, but took the time to disagree with him. And the list is pretty long. Well, and he was a direct influence on Husserl and Heidegger and Sartre in his book, The Imagination, that I'd read. Like A good chunk of it is him responding to Bergson, but his whole take on experience as non-atomic, that time is this continuous thing that you can't really cut up without falsifying mm-hmm. it, that, that was a direct influence on Husserl's examination of experience and uh, Heidegger's notion of sort of subjective time versus objective time, that what time is is not this thing that you're measuring on a clock that you're cutting into pieces, but is this, you know, durations differ depending on who you are and what you're doing. (laughs) And just this overall organic take Mm. on life. He did also lecture on uh, Heraclitus, I read. That was where his process philosophy thing came from, and he was a direct influence on Whitehead as far as that goes, right? And we see that in here, that just what Wes was saying about the natural state of the human being this flexible, organic thing and not mechanized, and that being the key to survival. And uh, in fact, one of his famous books was called Creative Evolution, which was a take on Darwin, but emphasized the dynamism of our adaptability. So maybe a good place for me, at least, to start to talk about is understanding this business about mechanism and rigidity and what he's contrasting it with. He includes an analysis of tragedy in this and the issue of this rigidity has to do with a kind of averaging that comedy does. He talks at the end about comedy being like the natural sciences because of this. But well, we start it, out with this kind of counterintuitive talk of there being an absence of feeling or emotion. That you're in the position of a disinterested spectator when you're laughing. Yeah, in fact, you can't have any emotion at all in yeah. comedy. Comedy is not about emotion at all. In fact, sentiment will destroy comedy. Right. It immediately turns it to the dramatic and the tragic. Yes. When you get sentiment involved or when you get any empathy, let's say, with the character on stage and you start feeling what they're feeling, then it's over. There's no more laughing. Any kind of fellow feeling at all. Yeah. 
it's sort of a strange thing to say in the sense that, well, the classic rule of thumb of any type of stand-up is that, you know, if you're trying to say something that's too weird, you know, the funny story you tell at a party that something strange that happened to you doesn't work on stage because in comedy you need to talk about things that everyone relates to. And that is a feeling. I think we're sometimes really biased when we say what's a feeling and what's not a feeling. No, like the sort of feeling of being simpatico, affinity. Affinity is a feeling. I wouldn't call it, you know, maybe empathy is a little too severe, but this feeling of you've had that experience before, we're all fellow humans. That's absolutely a feeling, and it underlies, I think, most comedy. Yeah, he actually talks about that at the end. You're right. There's that idea that we actually sympathize in some way with the comic character. And then he makes this weird comment that we do it more with our body than with our mind. That's in the very last part of the last chapter. But he sort of makes it out to be this two-part process where we sort of, in the first moment, we enter into the sympathy with the comic character and we get very relaxed. We relax ourselves from any obedience to common sense, right? We sort of enter into their little absurd dream world. And then we immediately react against that with laughter, which is almost like a kind of rejection saying, ha ha, you know, so under Bergson's theory, it's we're always laughing at someone, maybe not in the case of stand-up comedy at the comedian in particular, but there's always someone or something that's being laughed at, which is a sort of rejection of the sympathetic moment. When Bergson starts talking about the idea of relaxation in the end, there was this idea that, yes, there's sympathy, but that the sympathy is necessarily fleeting. Which, to me, that's the sort of thing where maybe that's a question for neuroscience rather than for philosophy. We could see what parts of people's brains light up and for how long. But I did think that that was an interesting take on, yes, there's this flash of genuine emotion, but only a flash. And then the humor actually happens. What he's trying to do is sort of look at the internal logic of what is funny. And you could say, well, maybe there is no internal logic. Maybe there are lots of different kinds of things that are funny, and there's no unifying theory that you could put forth that will cover all the cases. What unifies it is something biological, laughter itself. There has to be some affinity between humor and tickling, say. (laughs) They both use laughter. There must be some common source there. Now, that doesn't mean there's just nothing at all to say about sort of what the surface level logic of humor is, but that uh, we're not going to get the whole thing. In fact, that he uses throughout the book to reject other theories. He says, like, you might think humor is just discordant ideas, but think about these couple discordant ideas. That's not funny at all. But yet I had the same reaction when looking at his, you know, he says that when a person imitates something mechanical, like my robot voice, that's going to be goddamn funny. And I'm like, well, it'll be funny if it's delivered properly. And if it, you know, if all these other things are in a row, the idea in itself is not funny. I want to take his same rhetorical thing he uses against every other theory and use it against him and say, maybe there is no unifying theory that will capture all the comic at all. But the reason why the robot would be funny is never in itself because the rigidity that he's talking about, the mechanism, is always in contrast to activity and a specific kind of activity, the activity of life, as loosey-goosey as that is, that's the contrast he's talking about. And ultimately, that's a kind of individuality that the rigidity of things that are funny for Bergson has to do with them repeating and forgetting what the actual living thing is. And it's not clear to me exactly why that's funny. I mean, it seemed like more an observation on his part, an analysis of the phenomena, a kind of phenomenology. The rigidity is in contrast to something. It's not like the robot is 
in itself funny because there's probably for Bergson, there's nothing in itself for Bergson. Yeah. And it's not like anything mechanical is funny. And he does give a lot of different rules, you know, for what makes something funny. I mean, I think he tries to refine it. He's not just saying, yes, anything that's mechanical is going to be funny. Well, no, but if a person acts mechanical, that's supposed to be funny. Now I can immediately think of some context. Like if you're actually making a joke about the task you're doing being so mechanical. So let's say everybody that works at a bank decides that their jobs are so dehumanizing that they're just going to talk to the customers like robots, like their ATMs. Maybe that could be funny for a little bit, but that's a comment. Yeah, but it's not just that you are imitating something mechanical or that you're talking about the mechanical or anything like that. It's that basically there's that element of absent-mindedness where there's some sort of rule, especially a social rule. I mean, ultimately, this all comes down to the social. The more primal stuff that he's talking about with gestures and forms, which we'll talk about, really, in the end, will all come back to the social. So the idea is that there's these rules that we know we ought to be obeying, and the comic character lacks the awareness of himself and others and societal rules to actually obey them. And that rigidity and the mechanical part of it is a byproduct of that. And interestingly, it's that the comic character would be both a misunderstanding and sort of misapplying the rules or kind of have a rigidity with respect to the living nature of the social, mm -hmm. but also they would have an over application of the rule. So you have both those cases going yeah. on in which they weren't responding. They were acting like a robot the way Mark is talking about, that they were being themselves rigid and not lifelike. But both those things are going on for Bergson. Like the example of the customs officer who, in going out to save people who are drowning from a ship and asking them, do they have anything to declare, right? So where the ceremonial and rule-based element of society takes over to the point where, it, yeah, it becomes a cookie-cutter mechanical application. And just as a contrast, there is a time when this kind of rigidity is actually the sign of nobility, where you are actually preserving something in the face of nature. And the perfect example would be the guys, you know, playing the music on the Titanic, right? <laughs> Till it goes down with the ship. Right. And that's not funny. That's noble, right? <laughs> and actually, he talks a lot about Don Quixote, right? Who is sort of a borderline yes. case. You're meant to wonder whether he's simply laughably rigid or a noble rebel. And you end up laughing and crying with him at the same time. You know? I mean, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. At the very end of this book, he talks about the way in which... There's a kind of root of evil in comedy. And this would go back to the humiliation and the treating people not as individuals, mm. but as averages and aggregates and having the dissociation from them as individuals. And Bergson mentions this scene from Don Quixote, which if you've in the middle of it, he has this big adventure where he is a guest of these nobles and they take him in and talk to him, treating him as sort of playing his game. But wink, wink, nudge, nudging with themselves. So they bring him in and knowing that he's sort of crazy and thinking of him as crazy, but treat him superficially as if he's this great knight. And in the book, he sort of buys it. But they do this in order to constantly humiliate him and, and give him tasks to prove his knighthood in order to make fun of him. And the whole section of that book is incredibly painful if you have any kind of sympathy at all for Don Quixote and the fact that he's being utterly humiliated over and over and over again. It's not at all clear that if as a reader you're supposed to find it funny or why they are finding it funny and there's a clearly a kind of cruelty going on in it. 
So this story about Don Quixote and whether he is supposed to be a comic figure, this just strikes me as one of those things where that's just highly dependent on time and culture. And I think that might be a nice place to seg into talking about Bergson's discussions of disabled people and all kinds of other things that we don't really find that funny now. Unless you're watching Ricky Gervais or... Or, uh, yeah, or the is it the Coen Brothers movie? Fairly Brothers, maybe. Fairly Brothers. They have the whole co-joined twins movie, right? Yes. Okay. Stuck on you or something. Yeah, like it's that. very funny. <laughs> I missed that. I like the title. It's very funny and very endearing. It's a it's a brother movie. Greg Kinnear and Matt Damon are co-joined twins who work in wow. a uh, diner, and they have this special way of being incredibly fast with flipping hamburgers. Well, it's also sort of funny that they would be conjoined twins who aren't identical. I'm not sure that that's a disability that we're laughing at, such as a physical impossibility. I saw a martial arts movie that had male-female conjoined twins, which also cannot exist. That's not a thing. You have to just stitch some children together at birth to make that. It's not an act of nature. And so that's sort of funny, but I just don't think it's the same kind of thing as laughing at a deformity. And so to get back to Don Quixote, I mean, this idea that you're, it's not even clear whether we're supposed to laugh at that story. And I think that's very culturally bound in the same way that when Bergson talks about why we laugh at some deformities and not others, mm -hmm. I thought this was actually a little bit bizarre. This idea that obviously hunchbacks are hilarious. And I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. I've never thought a hunchback was funny in real life. I mean, I'm aware that they exist in cartoons, but every hunchback I've seen in life, it just made me a little sad. A lot of them have been old ladies. And so in trying to develop an overarching theory of what kind of deformity is funny, I'm becoming more and more convinced that this theory of rigidity explains a lot more of comedy than when I first started reading. When I started reading, I, I kind of said, wow, this is a stretch. And I'm getting a little more convinced. But on the issue of what kind of deformity is funny, what Bergson says is deformities that a normally built person could successfully imitate. You know, like, because we can pretend to limp, limping is funny. Yeah. And because we can fake a hunchback, hunchbacks are hilarious, which is kind of strange. I mean, I think that a penis growing out of your forehead is much funnier than a limp or a hunchback. Well, it's true. And the reason, the reason why being able to be imitated is important is because it's as if it's a choice. So then right. that element of it being due to something in the character, rigidity or absent-mindedness, is important to finding it funny. At some level, we have to be able to blame the person. And so a deformity, of course, or a certain kind of deformity, like being a hunchback, isn't really in and of itself funny to a reasonable person who's thinking, yes, it's not a person's choice. But the idea is that at some unconscious level, through this strange logic of dreams that he talks about, we find things funny through this attribution of intention, even where there's not intention. It's unreasonable. It's unjustified. It's not just, but it happens. And that's the idea. And I think, of course, people have laughed at hunchbacks and they've laughed at all kinds of horrible things. You know, comedy is not always nice. It's exactly that business of choice. Why in Young Frankenstein, the fact that his hunchback moves. I was going to mention that too. The reason why that's funny is because, well, it's in Bergson's view. It's why it's funny is because it highlights this notion of he's pretending to be a hunchback. At least that's what the implication is. And it's also because it's sort of a, it's playing with the type, with the stereotype of Frankenstein's servant and Igor and all that. Bergson talks a little bit about this, about when something becomes a social meme like that, you get an added layer of comedy there. You're also making a reference to all those past uses of that comic type. So Jennifer, would you say that due to cultural norms or something like that, when would deformity be funny? You know, I am 
a hard time thinking of a deformity that would be funny. And I'm sure that if I'd been born a hundred years earlier, I would feel different. Well, you said a penis growing out of your forehead. That would well, be that's, funny. That's not a real deformity. A penis growing out of a forehead is a hilarious idea in a movie. I think if someone really had a penis growing out of their forehead, that's tragic. And I'm sure, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're laughing now, but their life would be ruined or they would just have it removed immediately. So I mean, it's a very fictional version of a deformity. Real life deformities are not that funny. Bergson also talks in several places about Negroes, as he says, or as the translator decided to say, and why <laughs> people in Bergson's time like to laugh at them, which obviously is terrible. And so I think that this idea of rigidity, it just kind of breaks down in this example in the sense that people do just like to laugh at things that are different and, and surprising. And it's obviously very culturally bound. I'm reminded of a woman I know went to rural China. She's riding her bicycle through rural China in a place where a lot of people had not met a Caucasian person in person. Also, it's just sort of more acceptable to make fun of people on the street <laughs> than it is in America. Like if you just fall down off your bicycle, people will point and laugh in a way that we would um, try to hide, maybe. And so this woman is telling me that on her trip through rural China, people would regularly just point at her and make this sort of beak gesture, like look at this hilarious person's nose, look at the white woman's nose, essentially. And sometimes they would actually make this sort of like um, expanding their eyes gesture, you know, with their fingers, kind of look at your giant, stupid, big eyes. And you can see there are a lot of paintings in China from the era when Europeans were colonizing, paint Europeans as quite hideous and uh, beaked noses and huge, hideous bird eyes and very, a lot of hair, like disgusting, big, stabby facial hair. Europeans come off looking like these gross, pale, veiny vultures. Things that are different are funny. And then as they become less different and less surprising, they're not funny anymore. Maybe it's the case that someone who didn't have the benefit of mass media, when they saw a certain disability for the first time, they might think it's funny because it's just brand new. But once you've seen one hunchback, you've seen them all, and it's more sad than amusing. So in Bergson's theory, it, exactly. it, it turns from being comedy to being tragic when you recognize the individual, when you begin to have sympathy or feeling for it. And what I hear you describing is exactly that happening. And so that when you turn that corner, it's no longer funny. That might be a cultural norm about when you can turn that corner and go from the aggregate to the individual, go from the other to the sympathetic. But it seems to be right in line what he's saying. No, I do agree with that. I mean, I think that when that moment of empathy or recognition happens and the comedy sort of uh, dissipates or you feel guilty at having laughed in the first place, which in some of these examples would be appropriate. But I think that just in the initial discussion of what makes it funny in the first place, before that empathy happens and the comedy dissipates, what makes it funny in the first place? I think that there's a little bit of a stretch for the rigidity thesis here. So being a professional comedian, what makes something funny? When you're thinking through your show... Or better yet, were the things you were reading about here, did some of them ring true or not? Absolutely. I mean, of course, some things rang true. And when I first started reading, my initial thought was, okay, you know, sometimes things are funny because they are too rigid, but that does not explain a lot of things like wordplay. As I continued to read, I think that I became a little more convinced that the rigidity thesis explained a lot more of comedy than I had initially thought. But I'm just not really sure that the reason that, you know, you would laugh at someone with a different facial structure than you is... I mean, I think that traditional notions of what makes something funny have to do with the element of surprise. And that might be a better description in some cases than this idea about rigidity. I mean, there are cases in which the rigidity, this rigidity idea describes things very well. In terms of how I would make a joke or why something's funny, 
I think that in a lot of cases, the element of surprise is, of course, important. Saying something unexpected is important. But also, I want to kind of go back to the rigidity idea here in the sense that sometimes I think that what really makes a joke funny, what really takes a funny idea and makes it into an actual funny joke has a lot to do with this word by word phrasing. And a lot of comedians will write a joke and then test it out. You know, some comedians do just get drunk and go on stage and have a blast. And then, you know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. But some comedians are really incredibly meticulous in changing one word in a joke and then testing it and tracking how well... Some of them have spreadsheets for this to actually test one variable at a time in a joke. There was actually an article about this recently in the New York Times about the comedian Mike Kaplan and his working of a joke. I think it was called The Anatomy of a Joke. And it talks about this one joke joke and it's sort of life cycle from an idea and a long monologue to eventually just this little one-liner. And one of the things they mentioned in the early incarnation of the joke, the joke was about the old chivalrous idea that when there was a mud puddle that you would take your coat off and put it down on the mud puddle for a lady to walk across and how ridiculous that was, you know, that you would ruin your whole coat so this lady doesn't have to walk in a mud puddle and then you're stuck with a muddy coat. So he's exploring that idea, which is sort of a funny idea, but it wasn't funny when I just said it, you know, I was just explaining a premise. And so he's developing this joke and he comes up with this expression that really adds to the humor. And the expression was something about, oh, really, my whole coat is less important than your lady feet bottoms? And that was the expression, lady feet bottoms. It's these little counterintuitive expressions that really push the idea over the edge in making it funny. And a lot of that has to do with specifically breaking grammatical conventions or saying something we have a word for, but using an unexpected word for it. I don't know how that idea fits in. I mean, Bergson does get around to talking about wordplay and puns, and I'm just not sure that I agree with what he has to say about that. I think that in a lot of cases, it's not over-rigidity that's funny. It is the reverse. It's violating grammatical norms. Yeah, he does try to cover himself. I know I was characterizing him as giving this simplistic theory and trying to apply it to everything, but sort of at the beginning of every section, he says something like, looking at the beginning of chapter one, section five, as we hinted at the outset of this study, it would be idle to attempt to derive every comic effect from one simple formula. The formula exists well enough in a certain sense, but its development does not follow a straightforward course. What I mean is that the process of deduction ought from time to time to stop and study certain culminating effects, and that these effects appear as models round which new effects resembling them take their places in a circle. The latter are not deductions from the formula, but are comic through their relationship with those that are. In other words, yeah, there are going to be a lot of examples that don't sound like they go with my theory at all. But I'm going to lay out a series of associations that, yeah, you can sort of... It's funny because it looks like something that's actually funny. <laughs> <laughs> that really invites you to then come up with a theory that takes those, what he would consider borderline cases, like wordplay, and makes that the central thing and makes his comic characters the sort of borderline case. He does give a very detailed account of wordplay, though. It's not like he's... Yeah, no, I mean, he yeah. justifies all this stuff. I don't know. After a while, I just sort of decided I would just forgive him. And I don't really care if the theory works. I will revisit that consideration from time to time to figure out whether the theory actually does apply to everything the way he thinks it does. It's more just fun going through the exercise of trying and looking at all these different cases and seeing if you can come up with, you know, that they are some variation on this formula he's given. Although I gathered from talking to Seth that he did not find that so fun. And I have yet to hear why. I guess when I started to read this, I expected there to be, I thought he was going to do more of an analysis of what makes something comic. And so, you know, initially there were a couple of things. So he says, you know, comedy or, or laughter is something that's necessarily human. 
and that it has a social function, right? That laughter, laughter somehow serves a social function. That I found interesting. And the, the idea that laughter requires some kind of emotional distance, that in a certain sense, you have to be able to distance yourself from the empathetic in order to find something comical. I found that interesting. What I had to generalize when he was talking about the mechanical in something living, I sort of had to abstract a little bit from that and see it as that the comic somehow, on Bergson's theory, is I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. It makes of something, I don't want to try to define in terms of the thing we're trying to define, so I don't want to say it makes a parody, but somehow comedy represents something as almost like what it is, but not quite. And it's the way in which the representation takes place or the way in which the characterization takes place that either makes it funny or not funny. And that what tragic or the dramatic does is actually try to represent something as it is or more so as it is so that you then lose that barrier and you do empathize with the character. I suppose there's probably something to that. And we're talking about comparing stand-up. He's talking a lot about some of these comedic plays for the listeners. He makes a lot of references in the text to these French comedies, which apparently all featured doctors. So, you know, I would ask Jen this. There's a danger, right, when you're crafting a joke or when you're doing a bit of being too sympathetic or of having the audience identify too much with whatever it is you're trying to build up, that you do have to maintain this space. That idea makes sense to me. It really depends on what you're making a joke about. When we were talking about empathy, I was reminded of this comedian who I heard about who was shot in the head by her husband and uh, survived, obviously, and developed a comedy that's, act about that's this. That's not funny. And, no, it's horrifying. And when I heard that, I said, oh my God, I will do anything to avoid watching that. That is horrific. And so I have all the sympathy in the world, you know, like my sympathy is complete, but it's not funny. I don't want to see anyone try to be funny about that. Just the whole idea is horrifying. That's a place where empathy or sympathy absolutely hurts the comedy. Whereas when you're talking about something that is just not that touchy, I mean, there's nothing wrong with total identification with the audience. I mean, there are some comedians where audience members feel that, like maybe Dane Cook, who's not my favorite comedian in the world, but I think that's someone where there are a lot of bros out there who think that they are Dane Cook. You know, there's a total identification there. And that doesn't hamper comedy necessarily. Well, Sarah Silverman has this famous bit where she tries her best. She's decided, I'm going to try to make, I'm going to make rape funny. Okay. That's an excellent example to bring up because she's somebody who I can find funny and horrifying within the same like three minute span. I'm glad that you mentioned that example because I've done a lot of all women comedy events and I put a lot of thought into just what happens when you have a comedy event that's mostly women or dominated by women and how things kind of change. And, you know, Sarah Silverman absolutely is an example of someone who's funny and sort of horrifying at the same time. But it's also the case that there are some people who are really turned off in terms of comedy if there's something that would... There definitely are people who don't like Sarah Silverman, of course. And I'm reminded of this comic, and I honestly, I can't remember her name, but it was so interesting because she had a joke about rape, but it was a joke that 
a bunch of feminist vlogs were saying somebody finally made a funny rape joke. You know, George Carlin had tried and Sarah Silverman had tried. And this comic finally nailed it. And it was a joke about how women walk around being afraid of rape all the time. And the punchline, this is like, if you want to look it up, this is how you would find it. It's essentially the story of, you know, walking through a dark alley and so on and so forth. And when the rape finally comes, you say, oh, you know, it's finally here. That's my rape. You know, like the one you've been expecting this whole time. <laughs> That's my rape. Finally happened. Here it is. That would be Ever Maynard. Oh, good. I like to make sure people get credit for their jokes. So, you know, the lady blogosphere was just alight with the idea that someone finally made a funny rape joke. It had taken, you know, this much human evolution for that to happen. And so I think that that's, again, it's a case where you're not horrified by the joke. I mean, you're horrified by rape. You're horrified by the situation in society. But your identification with the comedian is complete. You know, there's no distance there. That comedian is exactly like you. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page. Get it by supporting us through Patreon or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.